Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Pensions Experts' fortnightly podcast. On the show this week, while some crusty hippies have decided that the way to fight climate change is to increase emissions by blocking ambulances on the M25, MPs have perhaps ambitiously called for more consensus on tackling climate change. It does seem to this reporter that blocking ambulances has actually produced a remarkable public consensus because very few people seem to like the crusty hippies. But in case that wasn't enough, the Work and Pensions Committee has called on the government to show global leadership on pensions ahead of the COP26 summit in Glasgow. We'll ask what this uh, global leadership could, should and will look like, something substantive, or will it suffice to repeat the words build back better from now on until the end of time? Next up, and notwithstanding Einstein's definition of madness, doing the same thing repeatedly and expecting different results, yet another intervention has been called for to fix the housing crisis, with experts arguing that pensions should be tapped to invest in social housing. We are, it seems, committed to trying absolutely everything to fix the housing crisis before we actually get around to fixing the housing crisis. Past experience would suggest that the answer is no, but we will ask anyway whether this particular scheme is likely to work. And then finally, despite repeated assurances that its intentions are good, the industry is still worried that the pensions regulator could be paving the road to hell. It published its criminal powers policy late last month, and though improvements have been made, the regulator is still far happier with the policy than those it regulates. We'll ask whether anything can be or is likely to be done about that. I'm Benjamin Mercer, reporter at Pensions Expert, and I'm joined today by Stuart O'Brien, partner at Sackers, and by Gareth Steers, pensions technical consultant at Aries Insights. Thank you both very much for joining me. And we will begin with climate change. So after the last few days of high winds, driving rain and general misery, it does still baffle me that people want to stop the country becoming more like the Bahamas. Uh, but here we are. And the Work and Pensions Committee published a report late last month calling for the government to show leadership, making one wonder whether the committee has paid attention when our last several governments have tried to show leadership. Uh, the report made recommendations on reporting standards, scheme governance, investment and stewardship. And Stuart, I will start with you here if that's all right. If we had sea level rises for about a milliliter, it would be for sea level, wouldn't it? For every new recommendation made about climate change, I think my boat would now be prime real estate. But um, what's new about, is there anything new about the Working Pensions Committee's latest call for the government to show the, these leaderships? What, what's it adding to the debate here? There's a few things in it. Um, some elements of it are just reflecting on the new regulations that uh, that came into effect this week. Um, so the large schemes obviously now have to do TCFD reporting and take account of climate risk and opportunities in their governance processes uh, as of 1 October. And that applies to the biggest schemes, uh, the 5 billion plus and the master trusts this year and then the 1 billion plus next year. So there's a kind of a catch up on that and a, I think a sort of few self-congratulatory paragraphs in the report uh, and even a suggestion that we should take this sort of lead and show the rest of the world how, how well we're doing on it. So, I mean, that, that much was expected, but there, was, there wasn't anything particularly new on, on that front. There were a couple of new things that did catch my eye though. Uh, firstly, there's the, a sort of a recommendation that we need to start thinking about our own UK specific green taxonomy, having shunned the EU's taxonomy. But there's a long way to go on that. And I think we'll, we'll sort of have to see how that pans out and how similar or dissimilar um, that ends up being to the, the EU's taxonomy. But the two things that really caught my eye for pension schemes specifically are around net zero. Uh, there was a, a recommendation in particular that uh, a consultation should be commenced on whether DC default funds should have a mandatory net zero uh, requirement. Um, now, that's not the first time this has been raised as a possibility. We saw Share Action did a responsible investment bill 
probably over a year ago uh, or, or so now. And they, in their bill, sort of put in a, you know, this was a model responsible investment bill covering all sorts of things. But, but in amongst that was a, um, surprise, surprise, a mandatory net zero for DC default funds used for auto enrollment. Um, so it's interesting to see that kind of recommendation kind of re-emerging or, or rather emerging from a, a sort of parliamentary committee rather than um, just emerging from share action. I perhaps reflect on that in a moment, but uh, I, I think this one's got legs. It's not the first time net, mandatory net zero has been raised as a possibility. We, as I say, I mentioned the share action responsible investment bill, but even when the pension schemes bill was sort of trundling its way through parliament, we had opposition bench proposed amendments for mandatory net zero that didn't get anywhere. And I think they were kind of a bit late into the day in terms of the pension schemes bill and, and a bit of a blunt instrument, not distinguishing between DB and DC. But this targeted, you know, DC mandatory net zero for auto enrollment default funds, I think that could be seized upon. There could be some appetite for this. So we'll have to see. So that was the first thing that caught my eye. The other thing that caught my eye, perhaps more briefly, is a recommendation that the pensions regulator should start producing guidance for trustees on how they should think about making their own net zero commitments. So absent any mandatory net zero requirements for DC default funds, obviously we've seen lots of DB schemes and and DC schemes make their own voluntary net zero commitments, raises some interesting legal questions around the ability to do that. But this report suggests that the pensions regulator should be producing some guidance in this area as well. So that's going to be an interesting one to watch too. So they, they were the two things that jumped out for me from that report. Sure thing. And Gareth, do you want, do you want to come in here? A, a, a mandatory net zero is, is better than, I think Greta Thunberg at one point said she doesn't want net zero, she wants real zero, which would involve all of us not breathing from this point until the end of time. But a net zero proposition, mandatory or otherwise, for, for all UK pension schemes, is that feasible, do you think? Is that also something that they'd like to pick up on, as Stuart says, perhaps without the government mandating it, or would it require something like a legislative incentive for it to happen? Well, I think the first thing that needs to happen, which was actually also a recommendation from the report, was that there ought to be a proper definition of net zero alignment. There's a few different ways you can do it. Does that mean investing in companies that are net zero themselves? Does it mean encouraging companies at every opportunity to be net zero? So as I say, the report does recommend that uh, the pensions regulator should come up with a definition. Whether the regulator will be keen to, I suspect probably not. As we'll come to later, they're not particularly keen on being very specific about this sort of thing. As for the idea of mandating it, I think it's probably going in that direction by itself. But then if you are talking about mandating it, are you then saying that uh, the default fund is always going to be one of these so-called ESG funds? And is that going to be a popular move? Might we see some kickback from that if people start to, you know, not not everyone, as much as, as probably everyone on this call is, not everyone is convinced of uh, climate change. And might there be complaints of people saying they've been auto-enrolled into not the best fund because of the uh, policy objectives of the government? So it could be a controversial measure if it was implemented. Stuart, there's always this tension, isn't there, between fiduciary duties and, and broader moral or social duties, which and I know there's, there have been attempts recently to, to make it or to, to sort of blur that distinction by saying actually tackling climate change is itself part of a fiduciary duty. Has that attempt gone far enough to make, say, a mandatory net zero 
default fund moved by the government of a piece with with what is traditionally understood to be fiduciary duties of trustees, for example. Yeah, fiduciary duties always raises its head, doesn't it? I mean, I mentioned before, lots of lots of schemes have made their own voluntary net zero commitments, and and those that have have sort of reconciled this with fiduciary duties. I, I won't go into the ins and outs of the kind of legal analysis, but suffice to say, I think if you if you craft it in the right way, it is possible to make a net zero commitment because you believe that's financially the best thing for the scheme and for its members and therefore you know that reconciles with your fiduciary duty but you do have to bring it back to what's in the best interest of the scheme and its beneficiaries not not kind of making commitments for external purposes so i mean you can do it but trustees have to think very carefully about it the, the nice thing though about uh, i say the nice thing depends which way you look at it the nice thing or the the bad thing about a mandatory net zero obligation is it cuts straight through fiduciary duties because fiduciary duties are those kind of nebulous i'll be told off as describing them as nebulous but they're trust law duties these are the things that kind of come out of hundreds of years of case law and keep lawyers you know very very excited but you can override those by legislating you know fiduciary duties are it, it matters not what the fiduciary duty is if you have a statutory obligation to comply with something so if you sort of railroad through a statutory obligation to have a net zero as a mandatory part of your dc default fund your your fiduciary duty then has to operate within that sort of statutory framework that you just set so it sort of doesn't really matter what the fiduciary duties are. If they want to legislate for it, they can legislate for it in the same way that you can legislate for and have, have already done to impose costs and charges limitations on DC default funds. You can legislate to prevent trustees from investing in their own employers. Um, so there's lots of things that if you, you that are legislative restrictions on what trustees can and can't do. And then within those, you know, that sets the the kind of boundaries for the pitch and then the fiduciary duty operates within those boundaries. So, yeah, that, that's why I, I say I think this one's potentially got legs because it does, it stops everyone talking about fiduciary duties and just, just mandates it, which is you know, part, part of the um, clues in the title of mandatory, <laughs> mandatory net zero. Excellent. Well, in that case, we will um, we'll move on from uh, climate change, though I think there is probably a slight link between this and the next topic, social housing, because Every minister and his dog seems these days to be very keen on getting DC funds in particular to invest in illiquid assets, and social housing is one of those. It's a bit of a pet peeve because the housing crisis isn't actually that hard to solve, but we will try everything, as mentioned in the introduction, before we do get around to solving it, which is, principally speaking, making it easier to build more of them. Uh, the National Housing Federation estimates the government will need to spend about £14.6 billion a year for the next decade to meet social housing demand through grants. It has been suggested the pension funds might look to plug this uh, gaping hole by investing more in social housing themselves. And Gareth, I'll begin with you on this one, if that's all right. I suppose in, in the first place, just the, the broad question would be, is it a good idea to get pension funds investing in social housing? Well, potentially, it's a very good idea. They seem like quite an obviously good match. Pension funds, by their nature, are, um, are patient capital. They can be invested for quite a long period of time. And then, you know, housing is in the nature sort of requires patience. It's going to be providing uh, investment returns for, you know, the long haul. So in theory, they're a very good match. The thing I'd, I'd caution with this, and it does go back, I think like you hinted at, to this uh, fiduciary duty point, is that the reason you make this investment, if you're a pension fund trustee, and, and to an extent, just as an individual investor as well, 
uh, with your pension should just be for the financial reasons. So you might, I mean, I mean, trustees are very wise to this, but they certainly shouldn't be thinking, well, my country needs more social housing. So I have this uh, pot of money, you know, maybe we can do some good here. That fiduciary duty does come into play. And, and, and I think it's much more effective in this case. There's, there's less of an argument than with climate that a lack of social housing is going to have uh, opposed long-term risks to, to your pension scheme. The other issue uh, always with any kind of property investment or infrastructure investment is uh, liquidity. It, it's not easy to disinvest and, and get all your cash back from this kind of investment, which is why it requires a patient investor. But there has been work done in this area, of course. The FCA is consulting now on work with long-term asset funds. And so that's going to make it easier, particularly for DC schemes, to, to get involved in this kind of investment. Sure. Yeah, no, I was actually writing a piece the other day that the Bank of England's Productive Finance Working Group's roadmap for, for increasing illiquid investments. But uh, I think Pension B put out some research around the same theme, which showed that the Bank of England, for example, is much more keen on this than members seem to be. I think like 76% of members said that they would be they would at least mind a little bit if they were delayed in getting access to their pension because it was invested in the liquids. But um, Stuart, do, do, I'll field the same question to you. I mean, what's your take broadly on, on the, the, uh, the efficacy of, of pension schemes investing in social housing? Is it, is it a sort of a, a good idea? Would it work for the stated policy objectives? I can't answer the question, is it a good idea? I'm not allowed to give author, uh, financial advice. But, I mean, our, our pension scheme is already doing it. Yeah, I mean, we, we've got sort of large DB pension funds already and have been investing in social housing for a while. Um, and to Gareth's point, it, it does take a lot of the boxes. It's um, you know, for trustees that can take that illiquidity premium and invest in something that has a kind of reasonably stable return and indeed um, often inflation linked type returns it can be a very useful asset class and we see lots of mature db schemes using this um, to get a little bit of growth that's as i say slightly inflation linked uh, while they're kind of moving gradually out of equities and schemes becoming more mature but you do go back to the purpose of why you're doing it. You're doing it because it's a good, a useful asset class. It is helpful, I think, and gives everyone a, a warm, fuzzy feeling to know that they're investing in a useful asset class that is also useful to society as well as to the pension scheme. Um, but that's not the primary driver for doing it. It's worth kind of, I'm going to do a, a a, um, a shameless plug for the work of the Impact Investing Institute, but they've done a lot of work and, and papers on sort of fiduciary duty and how trustees can look at investments that have positive impact in a way that's aligned with fiduciary duty. And I think social housing sort of definitely falls four square within that. But as you know, it's been being touched on the, the challenges are always not so much that DB schemes haven't got the right incentives to do it. If it's a good asset class, they'll invest in it already. It's the challenges is sort of getting DC money into it, as has been mentioned. And there you have got those bigger challenges of what works for DB, i.e. taking a liquidity premium, tends not to work for DC because we always tend to desire um, high levels of liquidity. Now, I know the FCA in their kind of proposal earlier this year for these sort of long-term asset funds was trying to unlock some of these difficulties of, DC schemes sort of needing to have uh, liquidity and also sort of constraints of having to operate funds within costs and charges, which aren't necessarily conducive to, to some of these types of funds. So I, I know it's not a new problem and we're sort of, it feels like we're moving a little bit closer to a solution with these long-term asset funds. But nevertheless, you know, you look across at 
DB schemes are already doing it to the extent they want to, and DC schemes don't tend to be dipping their toe in this these particular waters just yet. And I, I sort of question how much the unlocking of of some of these liquidity issues with long-term asset funds is is really going to make a, a massive difference. But we'll have to see. In that case, we will round off with the pensions regulator's new criminal powers. Um, it does once again seem to have, have slightly annoyed the entire industry. Uh, the new powers came into force, I believe, on the first of this month, around two days after the associated guidance was uh, published. Industry bodies have been complaining for a little while about the short timeframes allotted for consultations, to which TPR's response has apparently been to say you ain't seen nothing yet. But I believe some of the problems are, are as well, well, they are unchanged. Some improvements the industry broadly accepted had been made with the, the regulator's final draft of its, of its new criminal powers policy. But a lot of the concerns remain unchanged as from previous that nobody's quite sure, you know, in what circumstances the pensions regulator might start kicking down the doors of unfortunate trustees and disappearing them into the night. But um, Stuart, we'll start with you on this one. Give, give us the overview of the state of the, the criminal powers policy then. And to what extent has it actually improved is it improved at all a little bit majorly yeah i'm not sure it, i'm not sure it has changed all, all that much really despite all of our sort of protestations as this was trundling through through parliament the the pension regulator code helps a little bit but we're still stuck with the same quite broad aspect of of legislation which um makes us all feel nervous and, and myself included because you know a- anyone's in scope for this um including advisors so um, i could be off to prison if i get it wrong but the issue that, that this sort of boils down to really is that there's a number of new offences. The, the one that's really got everyone hot under the collar is this engaging in a course of conduct which detrimentally affects likelihood of accrued scheme benefits being received. And for that, there's a couple of additional tests you have to meet. You have to, you kind of have to, there's a, a mental element. So you actually have to engage in that conduct. You have to, there has to be a mental element, which means you either had to mean to, to do that or with, with this particular aspect, the uh, the engaging in a course of conduct detrimentally affecting likelihood of benefits being received, that the mental element is, is not just that you intended to do it, but it can also include where you knew that the act would do it, or you ought to have known that the act. So you've done something that affects the likelihood of benefits being received. You don't didn't necessarily know that that would be the case, but you ought to have known it. Um, and then there's a bunch of reasonable excuses that you might have and that the the regulators code on I think on the reasonable excuses that is quite helpful. It does set out examples of what might be reasonable excuses. And it does make the point that the burden of proof is on the prosecutor to demonstrate that, that reasonable excuse was um, was not, in fact, there. So taking a step back. Do I feel kind of completely comforted by this now we've got the regulators code? No. Um, Are there still, is the law still very broad in scope? Yes. Do we have a bit more guidance on what might be a reasonable excuse? Yes. And I think that's probably where the the regulator code is is helpful. But as I say, only helpful to a point. It doesn't doesn't completely solve the the broad remit of the the law as it stands. Gareth, you wanted to come in here. I spoke to you David Fares about this months ago, admittedly, so it may have changed since. At the time, he said that, the, that they've seen no evidence, for instance, that trustees are being driven out of trusteeship by the uncertainty created by the uh, pensions regulators' criminal powers policy. But I've spoken to many people since. We had Richard Butcher on the podcast just a couple of weeks ago saying that he knows people who have been driven out of, say, trusteeship by the uncertainty that's created by the criminal powers policy, amongst other things. 
where where do, where do you stand on this? Is it in a fit state to go forward? Are there real concerns outstanding, and some of which is Stuart set out, or, or has it, from your perspective, been a significant improvement? No, I think there there are going to be uh, concerns outstanding for quite a while, and I really think that the proof of the pudding is going to be in the eating, as they say. I think we're going to have to see some real examples of how TPR is approaching using its its new powers and uh, approaching these investigations before anyone feels any sort of real comfort that they're not going to get into trouble. And I think the problem is, and I sort of, I mentioned this earlier so I could have a, a nice callback now, um, I think TPR is very resistant to any calls for specificity, and this is consistent throughout quite a, a lot of its uh, guidance. And I can understand where it's coming from. Um, if you're specific, then you sort of rule in behaviours, which you might then come to regret, or you you rule out uh, behaviours as being fine, and when actually you want to make a judgment on a, a case-by-case basis. So I think that's why it's been uh, very resistant to coming up with specific lists of behaviours, which are, are fine. But that doesn't mean I've got no sympathy with people uh, you know like trustees who uh, you know might be subject to uh, to something like this or, or even imprisoned because so much of it is based on subjective interpretation so it's words like you know intent reckless what constitutes a, a course of conduct you know material serious you know all of these are subjective judgments and it will be to an extent, or at least to begin with, down to uh, the regulator to decide whether th- this word, you know, on the interpretation of this word. I think next time there is a big uh, BHS or, or Carillion scandal, there will be pressure on TPR to, to start using these new powers. And so where it's on it to uh, make a subjective interpretation and then there's this incentive to, to use the powers. Uh, I can really understand what, why trustees would be nervous if you'll give me another second, I do have a ray of light, though. One thing I hadn't realised until a, a webinar I watched last night is that the uh, burden of proof for having a, a reasonable excuse, which is a, another subjective term, the burden of proof will be on the, the prosecution, so probably the pensions regulator or DWP or Crown Prosecution Service. So, so rather than you as a trustee having to prove that you had a reasonable excuse, they have to prove the absence of a reasonable excuse. And that's actually you know, famously very difficult to do, to, to prove a negative. And so, I mean, apart from anything else, criminal prosecutions are very expensive, you know, require a lot of specialist knowledge. So I really think, or at least I, I thought it would be uh, quite rare that TPR would be looking to use certainly the, the imprisonment sort of stick to, to weigh the trustees. But then uh, saying that, then uh, I did notice later on that there was an expectation that perhaps there'd be five prosecutions this year. There was a, a DWP study, I think. So maybe I'm being uh, too positive. You could make a slightly Kafkaesque argument, which is that the burden of proof is on TPR to prove that you have had no reasonable excuse without telling you what a reasonable excuse necessarily is. Fantastic. Well, that brings us to the end of the, the principal uh, part of the programme. We have an always a pensions angle, I think. Gareth, do you have one for us this week? Yeah, uh, well, I've got something. Um, I've listened to, to others of your podcasts, and there's been some sort of great anecdotes in this section, and I don't really have one of those. But, well, when you suggested I, I come up with something for this, I thought, well, well what's the, the big news of t- today is, is probably... Uh, or one of the big pieces of news is the driver shortage. So I thought I'd look at 
the uh, job adverts for uh, HGV drivers uh, to see what sort of uh, a pension uh, that they get. You know, what's the pension angle to this story? And I was disappointed to find that even in the job adverts for full-time positions, you know, the, the salaries have gone up, but there is no mention whatsoever about any sort of pension benefits. And you think, well, even in a, a famously uh, undersubscribed job position like HGV driver, there's still no sense that, you know, a pension might be an extra incentive to, to get more people through the door. So uh, that was quite uh, disappointing news, but uh, that, that's the pension angle to that story. That's a good one. There's been no coverage of that. So that means we haven't been doing our jobs, which means I'll have to go away and take a look into it myself. That, although, I mean, given the age profile of HGV drivers, it looks like quite a few of them are using driving as an alternative to a pension, which might not be the same <laughs> propositions in the world. Oh, I'll have to go and look into that one. I think that does sound interesting. But uh, well, thank you very much for that. And uh, so thank you to Stuart and to Gareth very much for joining us. Uh, thank you to our listeners as always for listening to us. We will be back in two weeks time. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.